Well, good morning, everyone. Um, I'm going to preach from up here today. Um, one of the reasons is, is because um, we usually record the, the sermons, and I've got that little wireless microphone, and, and for whatever reason, on the same frequency, there's always like a newscast or a baseball game on the radio, and so in the middle of, of the message, when it's recorded, you can hear like some newscast or something in the background that it's picking up, and so I wanted to try and preach from up here today. And, and on that note, if, if, you, if you miss a day of church or if you want to go back and listen to, um, come find me. I'll, I'll, I'll show you on your phone how to get our, our sermons up so you can listen to those um, if you end up missing one. So with that, I would love if you would join me in a word of prayer. Father God, we ask this as you, as you guide us through your word today that you would just help us to to soften our hearts, to understand your word and apply it to our lives. Father, we ask that you would um, give us the strength and the courage we need to, to live out your scriptures and the example that we see in Christ and the example that we see in your word. Father, I ask that you would be with me, that you would make my words clear and concise, that you would help me to handle your word properly um, with the reverence and respect it deserves. And most of all, Father, we thank you for your son and his sacrifice. And it's in Jesus' precious name we pray. Amen. All right, so we're, we're in our Philippians series. We're, we're getting into chapter 3. Uh, it was gone last week, so I want to give you guys a little bit of a recap of, of where we are in the book of Philippians. So in, in chapter 1, Paul has, has introduced himself. He's given the church this theme of unity that he wants to have them uh, live out. He's described his stay in prison and some of the troubles he's going through. But all in all, Paul's, Paul's giving a very joyous tone. He's telling them these bad things that are happening in prison, but he's like, it's okay. It's okay because actually uh, God put me here for a reason. This is a good thing. And so, and so he's given them this, this joyous example of how to live your life in the face of all of these trials and circumstances. And then we get into chapter 2 and Paul starts talking about... Um, He's going to send Timothy and Epaphroditus, or excuse me, he was going to send Timothy, but then that didn't work out, and then he was going to send uh, Epaphroditus, and so that's where we are as we pick up in chapter 3. So if you have your Bibles, I invite you to open up with me to Philippians chapter 3, and, and we're going to sort of build on this theme of rejoicing that Paul has been going through. So Philippians chapter 3, verse 1. Paul says, Finally, my brothers and sisters, rejoice in the Lord. To write this again is no trouble to me, and it is a safeguard to you. So like I said, Paul's continuing on this joy theme. Paul is trying to encourage them and uplift them. So as we get into chapter 3, let's see what Paul has to say that's so joyous and so uplifting. Verse 2, Paul says, Beware of the dogs, beware of the evil workers, beware of those who mutilate the flesh. Wow, okay. Have you, have you ever fallen asleep in the middle of a movie and then the, the movie ends and then the next movie comes on and you wake up in a completely different movie that you're sitting on the couch watching and you're, you have this moment where you're like, whoa, that's not what I remembered we were talking about the last that's kind of what we get here in Philippians, isn't it? Paul's like, rejoice in the Lord, things are great. Timothy, Epaphroditus, and then we get into chapter 3, verse 2, and he's like, beware of those dogs. It's, it's jarring, isn't it? 
It kind of shakes you up as you're reading the book, as you're reading the letter. It's so jarring that if you look in your Bible, your study Bible or your commentaries, you'll have all sorts of Bible scholars throwing out all sorts of different theories as to what's going on here in this letter. There's some folks that will actually, they think that this is such a stark change in the letter that they think that Philippians actually ended up with two separate letters that somehow got stitched together. Which, by the way, I've done a little research on that. I don't buy it. It doesn't make much sense, but that's just people trying to figure out why in Philippians 3 that's such a drastic change. There's other people who say that maybe Paul was writing this letter and then he got called away for something and then when he came back, he was just in a different mood, um, which again is odd, doesn't quite make sense to me, but it's, it's still this kind of thing as we're reading scripture, we should be at least paying close enough attention to ask these kinds of questions. And paying close enough attention to the text to say, wow, that's odd. Why, why is it so different? And so full disclosure, as we go through this, uh, this message, um, this passage of Scripture here in chapter 3 is the, is the passage of Scripture I'm writing my thesis paper on for college. And so I'm doing a lot of, of research. And so maybe in a year or so after I've had a year to really study it, um, we'll revisit it. But, but I want to give you that disclosure because a lot of the the research that I'm doing on this passage of Scripture is, is kind of, it's, it's a work in progress. It's, it's original research that I'm doing. And so right now I'm in the phase of, like if you're a chemist, you've got the blue chemical and the red chemical and you're mixing them together and you're like, I wonder what happens when we mix these things together to try and learn new things. So take the little bit of what I'm talking about in this introduction with a grain of salt because I haven't finished researching it yet. Um, I might end up figuring out something really cool or it might explode in my face like the red and the blue chemical do when you mix them together. But part of the, part of the research I've been doing with this passage is, is exactly that, slowing down, like I said, and paying attention to the text of Scripture and what it actually says in order to understand why this is so contrastingly different from chapter 2. So let's get some, some data points. Like we're a scientist. We're looking at the text through a microscope. Let's get some data points about chapter 3. Let's go back to chapter 1. I want to read this one more time. He says, Finally, my brothers and sisters, rejoice in the Lord. Okay, that fits with what we've been reading so far. To write this again is no trouble to me, and it is a safeguard for you. So whatever we're about to read here in chapter 3, Paul is telling us he's already told them this or written this to them once before, and he's telling it to them again. He says, to write this again is no trouble for me. That's an important data point to remember. And so if you look at your study Bible, you're going to see somebody who's going to say something like, well, Paul is apologizing or justifying himself for repeating himself. That's why he's saying, to write this is no trouble for me. And in fact, it's a safeguard for you. And the biggest problem I found in my research is that nowhere else in Paul's letters does he ever apologize for repeating something. 
Paul's not the kind of guy who's going to tell you something twice and then kind of go, I'm really sorry, guys, that I have to tell you this twice. I really don't want it to offend you or bother you, but it's really a good thing. that I'm... Paul doesn't do that. If Paul's going to tell you something twice, he's going to tell you twice, three times, four times. It doesn't matter. He's going to tell you as many times as he needs to tell you for you to get it. So, so that doesn't quite make sense to me. Third data point. Excuse me, second data point. Um, and this doesn't, I'll, I'll, I'll kind of try and draw some of this out when we get into the text. But what we read in what follows in chapter 3 has the, has the hallmarks of an ancient sermon. When you look at the original language, Paul actually uses literary tools. He uses alliteration. alliteration that's like Sally sells seashells by the seashore. In the original language, Paul uses that technique. He breaks things up into these nice little stanzas where the same word gets repeated three times in a row. And so one of the research that I'm doing, and, and, and again, these are theories or just theories, but I'm looking at this passage of Scripture and I'm comparing it to old sermons and trying to show that what Paul is doing is he's rewriting a sermon that he had preached in Philippi. And so my, my theory, my, my hypothesis that I'm raising is... Um, Paul's in prison, Epaphroditus shows up, he gives him some news, and Epaphroditus says, hey, by the way, remember that one time when you, you preached that sermon for us, the one that started out with the dogs? And Paul's like, yeah, I remember that. And Epaphroditus goes, we would love to have a copy of that. Do you think you could throw that in your letter for us? And so Paul says, of course, to write the same thing to you is no trouble at all to me. In fact, it's a safeguard for you. So he's not apologizing for repeating himself. He's letting the church know that they don't need to be worried about asking him, about troubling him to write down some sermon that he preached. And I think this explains why the passage between 2 and 3 is so jarring and so striking because Paul is quoting a previous sermon that he had given to them several years earlier. I kind of tend to think that this was actually preached during the very first visit to Philippi. Again, all of that I just told you, take that little bitty grain of salt because theories are just theories. So you can set it over here. It's neat. Um, it's just an idea that I have, okay? But if we, if we understand it this way, this is, this is something that I think was preached during his account in the book of Acts. Remember, in the book of Acts, all the way back when we studied Acts, what had happened right before Paul got to Philippi? It was the Jerusalem counselor, council when these certain men from Judea came and they wanted the Gentiles to be circumcised. And so Paul gets to Philippi, he starts the church, he preaches this sermon where he's warning them, hey, these guys are coming, they're going to try and convince you to be circumcised. And so my theory is that Epaphroditus showed up and he's like, hey, those, those circumciser guys, they're back. Just like you told us, we'd really like to have a copy of that sermon you preached so that we can have ammunition against them when they're preaching these false doctrines in the church. So, so, so in this, verse 2 is where the sort of sermon would begin. So verse 2, Paul says, Beware of the dogs, beware of the evil workers, beware of those who mutilate the flesh. This is a fascinating verse. So this one, this is the verse that has that alliteration I was telling you about. 
All three of those words, the word for dog, the word for evil workers, and the word for mutilators, or the ones who mutilate the flesh, they all start with the letter K. So he's got this rhythm. He says, ba-ba-ba-ka, ba-ba-ba-ka, and each word starts with a K. And this verse is, it, it's probably one of the most clever verses in the entire book of, and the entire, all of Paul's letters. So first off, Paul says, beware of the dogs. Dogs are unclean animals in Jewish life. So a dog is what a Jew might call a Gentile to describe them as being unclean. Okay, so Paul is taking that same insult that might get used against a Gentile, and now he's turning it back on the Jewish teachers who want to circumcise the Gentiles. So he's taking their own insult and flipping it back on them. Like, I'm rubber and you're glue, what bounces off me sticks to you, that kind of thing. Paul says, beware of the evil workers. Again, Paul's opponents, the ones who wanted to preach circumcision, were really big on good works. You read all through Paul's letters. You're not saved by good works. You're not saved by good works. That was their kind of catchphrase. We're the ones who do good works. And Paul says, no, 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 no. Your good works, quote unquote, your circumcision, your kosher diet, all of that, he turns it around and calls them evil works, evil workers. And then he says, beware of those who mutilate the flesh, the mutilators, the mutilation. And this is a really, really tough one to get to come across in English because the word here is actually a play on words for the word circumcision. If you jump ahead to verse 3, it says, for we are the circumcision. So the word circum, and you can hear it in the, in the word circumcision. Circum, think circumference, means around. And then scission means to cut. Right? So it's a... It's a very medical, sterile definition of the procedure that's happening during circumcision. The word for mutilation is, is the same word. It has the scission cut word in it, but instead of around, it's off. And so, I realize this is a little bit graphic, but it's in the Bible, so that's my excuse. The circumcisions were the cutter-arounders, and it's this very, like, we're cutting around our sin. It's got this... this uh, metaphor to it, the circumcisers, the Judaizers, were the cutter-offers, the emasculators. Um, and so you can kind of put those pieces together in Paul's wordplay here. It's really offensive to who he's talking to, and it's really clever wordplay, wordsmithing he's doing. He's making a mockery of these guys' infatuation with this procedure and their infatuation with wanting to do this procedure on all these Gentiles. He's describing them as people who just get their kicks going around mutilating people. Um, and so verse 3 plays into that. Beware of the cutter-offers. Um, the King James actually gets that wordplay a little bit. He calls them the concision instead of the circumcision. For we are the circumcision, the ones who worship by the Spirit of God, exult in Christ Jesus, and do not rely on human credentials. Or your Bible might say, put trust in the flesh, confidence in the flesh. Paul's setting up this dichotomy. When, if you remember, when you looked, when we looked at chapter 2 about the, the Christ hymn, and we talked about how every knee will bow on heaven and on earth and under the earth, and we talked about how that was a very Roman way of looking things, where there's these three realms Above, on, and below. That was a very Roman way of looking things. Well, this, 
spirit and flesh. We, we worship by the spirit rather than boasting in the flesh. That's a very Jewish way of looking at the world. So from a Jewish perspective, and I would argue from a Christian perspective, the worldview that the Bible holds is there's two options and only two, and there is no third options. There's spirit or there's flesh. There's good, there's evil. There's with God or against God. There is no middle road. If you read through John, it's all about light and dark and life and death. There's just there's two roads and there's two ways and there is no middle option. Psalm 1, I think when we looked at the Psalms, we looked at Psalm chapter 1, where it says, Certainly the Lord guards the way of the godly, but the way of the wicked ends in destruction. This duality that exists um, is all throughout the Bible. You're either for God or you're against God. In, in the book of Genesis, what does God do? He separates the light from the dark, the earth from the waters. Everything's cut in half. And then this one from De- Deuteronomy, he says, Look, I have set before you today life and prosperity on the one hand and death and disaster on the other. That's a Jewish worldview. That's a Christian worldview. So when Paul uses this dichotomy, when he talks about the ones who worship by the Spirit and those who trust in their human credentials, they put confidence in the flesh, what is the the dividing line that stands between this dichotomy? I think this is something that we can sometimes breeze over. Remember, the subject at hand is Paul is talking about the Judaizers who want to circumcise the Gentiles, but the circumcision itself is not the dividing line. It's a symptom of the dividing line. It's a symptom of putting trust in me. Trusting in your own works. Trusting in my acts of obedience as, instead of the faith and the grace of God. Our obedience matters. The actions we do matter. And circumcision was an act of obedience to the Old Testament. But Paul is drawing the dividing line and saying your heart matters most before your obedience If you're obedient simply to check boxes or because you think that somehow it's going to earn you a spot in heaven, God is not pleased with that type of obedience because that's obedience that comes without faith. It's self-serving obedience as if we think that we have something we can give God that he doesn't already have. And that's the situation that Paul is describing when he's describing the Judaizers. They're keeping the law in a self-serving way rather than putting their faith in God's work. And if anybody has room to talk about this dichotomy, it's Paul. Verse 4, Paul describes his, his former way of life. He's talking about their trusting in human credentials. They're trusting in the flesh. And Paul says, though mine too are significant. If someone thinks he has good reasons to put confidence in human credentials, I have more. So Paul's saying, you want to play this obedience game? You want to see who's the most righteous, who's got the most leg to stand on here? Okay, we'll play that game and we'll we'll talk about our obedience record and see how far it gets you. 
He says, I was circumcised on the eighth day from the people of Israel and the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews. I lived in the law according to a Pharisee, according to the law as a Pharisee. In my zeal for God, I persecuted the church according to the righteousness stipulated in the law. I was blameless. You can't get much more obedient than that. Blameless, he calls himself. And I don't think he was exaggerating that much. Paul was a Pharisee of Pharisees. You don't get to be a Pharisee of Pharisees, a Hebrew of Hebrews, without having a pretty stellar record of obedience. Not perfect, obviously, but if we understand from what the book of Acts tells us and what Paul talks about himself in his letters, Paul was up there in terms with keeping the law and being obedient. Verse 7, he tells you what he thinks about all those human credentials. How he really feels about keeping the law in an act of self-serving obedience as, as opposed to an act of faith. He says, These assets I have come to regard as liabilities because of Christ. These things that I have gained, I have considered to be loss for the sake of of Christ. I'm reading out of the net translation here, and I think they do a good job bringing out that word assets and liabilities because this loss and gain language that you've got in a lot of English Bibles, these were words that were used in a financial setting. If you've got crops, you've got your losses and your gains. If you've got a, a marketplace, you've got assets and liabilities, gains and losses. And so he's, he's describing this in terms of the marketplace. He's basically saying here, all that time when I was obedient to serve myself and trusting in myself and trusting in my own actions, I was trading in the wrong currency the entire time. You guys, you guys know how the stock market works, right? You take your money and you invest it in a company in the hopes that that company will do well and you'll get a good return on your investment. And it's only in hindsight whether you realize that you've made a good investment, whether you're trading in the right currency or not. All that stock that you bought at Kmart, not doing you so well right now. If you bought stocks in Blockbuster, or you guys remember Enron? That was a long time ago, but Enron. You're trading in the wrong currency, you're going to have a loss. And so Paul was trading in the currency of self-righteous obedience. And after having an experience with the resurrected Jesus Christ, he realized that he had been putting his chips in the wrong pile the entire time. All of that stuff that I had gained, all of my assets, they were actually losses. They were actually liabilities, and I didn't even realize it. So what was the right currency to trade in? Verse 8, he says, more than that, I now regard all things as liabilities compared to what? Compared to the far greater value of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things. Indeed, I regard them as dung that I may gain Christ. The far greater value of knowing Christ. Not knowing of Christ, 
not knowing about Christ, but truly knowing him, making him Lord of your life, submitting to him, giving everything you have to him and trusting in him. And then Paul realizes that that's the currency that brings life. That's the currency I want to trade in. And understanding that everything we do is a loss, it's a liability compared to the value of knowing Christ. And that includes, by the way, our acts of obedience. As important as obedience is, knowing Christ is one step above. You can come to church every week, faithfully, but if you don't know Christ, you're trading in the wrong currency. You can feed the homeless, you can hand out blankets, but if your heart is not doing it from a position of being in a relationship with Christ, you're trading in the wrong currency. Even, dare I say, baptism. If you're being baptized from a position of earning your way up the ladder, trusting in the water as opposed to trusting in Christ, all you're doing is getting wet. And you're trading in the wrong currency if you don't know Christ. Because what what this obedience apart from Christ does is it puts us in a place where we start to think that God owes us something. Well, I did all these good works. I read my Bible. I fed the homeless. I was baptized. I take communion. I go to church. Now God owes me salvation. God doesn't owe you a thing. You'll find out how worthless all that obedience apart from Christ is. It's worthless currency, and Paul gave up all of it. Paul says what he thinks about this rote obedience without a relationship of Christ, without knowing Christ. He says, indeed, I regard them as dung. This is a very interesting word Paul uses here. I've looked through a whole bunch of different Bible translations, and the word he uses is either translated as dung or garbage, or refuse. Um, in the Greek, the word is skubala. And I'm, okay, I'm just going to come straight through the front door here. The word Paul uses is, is it's a vulgar four-letter word. It's like kind of akin like to using the S word. Now that might cause all sorts of problems. If that worries you, we'll pull out our Bibles and we'll talk about it. Um, That also causes problems when you're writing a Bible translation because you want to accurately write what Paul says on the one hand. And on the other hand, you want people to actually buy your Bible. And if it's got a swear word in it, nobody's buying that Bible. So we're going to go with dung. Um, And that's as close as we're going to be able to get without people just boycotting your Bible. So be forewarned of that. But the only reason I bring that up is because I want you to understand just how seriously Paul takes this. Paul thinks that their salvation is on the line if they succumb to trading in this currency of obedience as opposed to the currency of knowing Christ. And he thinks it's so important that he's willing to say a cuss word in church just to get the point across, to wake them up. Because if they don't, they're going to go to hell. That's how serious it is. If you're not trading in the right currency, then everything is a loss. 
And so the only thing that matters to Paul in this sermon, as I propose, that he's preaching to them, that he's trying to get them to wake up and understand what the right currency is, the only currency that matters to him is a life that's marked by putting a full trust and confidence in Jesus Christ and placing him as king over your life. And our obedience springs forth from that faith in Christ, from that trust in Christ, not the other way around. All the rest of it, it's garbage. It's filth. He says, all of this is loss, verse 8, that I might gain Christ and be found in him, not because I have my own righteousness derived from the law, but because I have a righteousness that comes by way of Christ's faithfulness or faith in Christ. We'll talk about that in a minute. A righteousness from God that is, in fact, based on Christ's faithfulness. Okay, I'm, I'm, I'm willing to bet dollars to donuts that in your Bible it says faith in Christ. We are justified by our faith in Christ. And I'm also willing to bet you've got a little footnote. And go down to your little footnote and you're going to see somewhere that says something like, or Christ's faithfulness or faith of Christ. If you don't have those little footnotes in your Bible, I highly recommend you get one that does. Because there's certain phrases that can be translated in multiple ways, and so they give you the options of different ways you can translate this. So Paul says, I'm not saved by the law, but by way of either faith of Christ or faith in Christ. And that, this, phrase, this phrase can actually mean both. So... It's another little play on words that Paul is using with this little double meaning. So we are saved by putting our faith in Jesus Christ. We are saved through our faith. At the same time, we are saved by the faithfulness of Jesus to the Father and his acts of obedience. And so I, I want to bring this up and talk about the faithfulness of Christ because I think in our context here, it really hammers home the point that it's not us that does the saving. Even if we put our faith in Christ, if we get to a point where our faith and our belief makes it so that God owes us something and we did something special, then we're still trading in the wrong currency. Even our belief. If we have the heart and the mindset that says, well, I, I, I pray and I believe, therefore... I did it. I saved myself. My faith bought me a ticket to heaven. No, it still doesn't work that way. Not even our belief merits us our salvation. It's based on Christ's faithfulness given to those who have faith in Christ. The point is, the currency we need to be trading in is recognizing that we have nothing to offer God and he has everything to offer us. Paul's problem with these certain men from Judea who came and wanted to circumcise the Gentiles, it wasn't about the circumcision per se. That was just a side issue that was coming from a much bigger cancer that was going on in their hearts. In fact, if you, if you were in the first century and you were a Gentile and you went up to Paul and said, you know, I, I kind of want to get circumcised, Paul, not because I think it's going to earn me anything, 
but because I love God so much and I just want to obey him and I want to honor him, Paul would have said, okay. He would have told you you don't have to. He would have told you that it earns you nothing, but if that's your act of, of worship to God, Paul would have been just fine with that. And I know that because in the book of Galatians in chapter 6, Paul says, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything. The only thing that matters is a new creation. In other words, those who chose to not be circumcised weren't any better off because they weren't any more than the ones who were circumcised were better off because they were. Either way you go, it's not the issue that gets you into heaven. It's God and his work and his actions that causes your salvation. The problem I have and the problem Paul had with these Judaizers was in fact the fact that they were doing it because, like I said, they thought that God owed them something. I think we can get caught up in that. We'll sometimes preach, and we preach what the Bible says. We preach that the, the gospel demands a response. That was what Dave was talking about last week. I listened to his, his message. It was really good. And it's very true that the Bible demands a response. The gospel demands a response. That is the truth. But when we get to the point where we start to think that our response supersedes the initiation that God did on the cross, that's when we're in trouble. When we start to think that our confession, our baptism, our works are, are checking the boxes so that God owes us salvation, that's when we start to tread into false doctrine. And all of it's dung compared to the far greater value of knowing Jesus Christ. He says in verse 10, he says, My aim is to know Him and to experience the power of His resurrection, to share in His sufferings and to be like Him in death. United with Christ in sufferings and in death and, and all that Jesus went through, we want to just imitate Him. Our love for Jesus should be so much that we are just so enamored with Christ that we want to imitate Him and, and His acts of obedience and His acts of sacrifice. Not asking for anything in return, not demanding that God save us, not expecting anything back, but just purely loving and knowing Christ and wanting to imitate Him for that fact alone. In verse 11 he says, And so, after all that imitation to somehow to attain to the resurrection from the dead. I think that that word somehow, Paul has made it extremely clear that that somehow does not depend on Paul. It doesn't depend on us. It's an act of grace that God gives us. Um, as a side note, would somebody uh, send a message or go ahead and grab our kids from downstairs? The currency that we trade in matters. We want to be in a right relationship with God, and if we're trading in currency that's backed on our own efforts, that market's going to crash every single time. We should be trading in the gold standard. Not a currency based on our efforts, not on our actions, but on Christ's 
faithfulness and Christ's obedience. That's where our righteousness comes from, from him, not anything we do. I want to read from Psalm 115, chapter, chapter 115, verse 1. I think this sums up how our standing before the king should be. The psalm says, Not to us, O Lord, not to us, but to your name bring honor for the sake of your loyal love and faithfulness. That's how we should be. We should place ourselves before the throne and say, Not us, not what we do. I don't want the glory. I don't want any of it. I just want your name to be praised. We pray with me. Father God, we, we come before you humbly in awe and reverence and fear and trembling. And we're just so enamored by the fact that you love us so much. That you did so much for us. That you, you gave your son, not to mention the fact that you made everything that you put us on this earth, that you put the breath in our lungs and the heart beating in our chest. You did all of it, and we did nothing, God. And we just want to bow before you and make you Lord of our life. We just want to let you know that we have nothing to offer you because everything we have comes from you. Father, we ask that you would help us not to live a life trading in the currency of rote obedience, trading in the currency of our own selves and our own self-serving actions, but trading in the currency of you and knowing your Son. And it's in his precious name we pray. Amen.